Let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel 5, verse 17. And when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place baal Perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer. <clears throat> God add his blessing here to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> All right, well thus far we have <clears throat> seen in this new section, beginning in verse 6, the author directing our attention to David's establishment in Jerusalem. Uh, of course, he was crowned at the beginning of the chapter, which ends the first section. And so the beginning of this one, we see the conquering of Jebus, the settling in Jerusalem, the building up the city, and the building of David's palace. And then we ended last time with David building his family with more wives, concubines, and children. Now, we can say that all these things were demonstrations of God's blessings on David and showed how David was very different from the kings of the world and even compared to Saul. But, as we saw in the last part last time, an ominous note has been struck. It was struck earlier in chapter 3. Here again we see it. David is multiplying wives, something God told him not to do. Back in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. These family relations become a thorn in David's side. And of course, we'll see that beginning in chapter 11. Well, next here now, <clears throat> the author describes for us David's victory against Israel's arch enemy. So, let's begin then, verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. All right. Now, you might remember when we first started this section in verses 6 and following that I um, briefly said a few things about the question of chronology uh, in this section. So let me say a little bit more here now. Some people say that this verse is an indication that the battle of the Philistines actually happened prior to the battle with the Jebusites. David was anointed and uh, then this happened first, okay? they heard about it, so they go search him out, <clears throat> and then David after this goes to Jebus. All right, so let me develop a few thoughts here in this regard without dwelling too much on it. Uh, but notice 
It says they're searching for him. If he was anointed in Hebron, why do they need to search for him? Um, suggests that he has gone somewhere else, like Jerusalem, for example. Uh, we need to remember, of course, that uh, news did go pretty quickly at the time, but not instantaneous around the world like we know today. And so it's possible that... Um, you know, weeks or maybe even months pass before they, they hear about all of these things. Um, now, some have tried to say that the first word in the verse is an indication that this happened next. And so you could say now or then to translate it. Uh, the problem with that is uh, you could do the same thing in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 11. Okay, so um, and clearly... Uh, this event did not happen after he had all these children. So I'm not sure that that argument holds up much. I think something that's a bit more um, definitive, though I'm not sure we can say um, definitively, completely, is it says they went, or he went down to the stronghold. And then you see in the next verse about going up to the valley of Rephaim. It is possible that David was in Jerusalem and he went down 50 feet in elevation or something like that to the stronghold of Zion. Um, it's possible that he was in Hebron and he went down to the stronghold near En Gedi. It's also possible that he was in Jerusalem and he went down to the strongholds near En Gedi. These seem to be our, our only options, and the one that makes most sense to me is that he did conquer Jebus, and he is in Jerusalem, in Zion, in that stronghold, but he goes down to this other one. So if you look at your maps here just a moment, let me just call our attention to uh, the geography here. You see where Jerusalem is here, land of the 12 tribes map again, and you see um, Hebron, you see En Gedi there, Salt Sea. Uh, those strongholds were near En Gedi, the big one, Masada, maybe 10, 12 miles south of En Gedi along the Dead Sea. And certainly, right, the Dead Sea is below sea level. And so even though Jerusalem is only, um, I think it's, I was going to look this up, I think it's about 2,250 feet above sea level. It's not that far above sea level, but when you drop several hundred feet below sea level, obviously it's going down. And spiritually speaking, you always go up to Jerusalem when you're going to it, and you always go down from Jerusalem when you're leaving it. And so certainly this was true just simply in elevation, but spiritually speaking, that uh, often you see that language too. Um, let me uh, just read for you here briefly. This is 1 Samuel chapter 23. In uh, verse 14, it says, David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 29, David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. He was in the south and he came further north uh, at that point. Um, so <clears throat> we don't know for sure, but it's likely, at least I'm following the view that would suggest that he went um, to one of these strongholds along the Dead Sea. Um, it would make sense if he were in Hebron to do this. It would also work if he were in Jerusalem and it's not fully fortified at this point. All right, let me develop it a little bit more. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles 
and chapter 11. <clears throat> Just the flow of thought here does seem to suggest the same thing. In 1 Chronicles 11, right, David is anointed. And then he's established in the city, verses 4 and following, defeating the Jebusites and such. And then we have this extended tangent on the mighty men of David, beginning in verse 10 through the end of chapter 11. And then into chapter 12, even more so, even going back in time when David was in Ziklag before Saul was killed. All these different people started following David, and you see the stronghold in verse 8, the stronghold in verse 16, and so forth. Um, and then you might remember in verses 23 to the end of the chapter, we already read this, because this is all the different armies that came when David was crowned. Well, next then, chapter 13, is about the bringing of the ark and the killing of Uzzah. Then it says about Hiram in chapter 14 and all of his children. And then we come to this story of the Philistines. And then we finish the story of the ark coming to Jerusalem in chapters 15 and 16. Just, you know, the way it's laid out here, similar to what we see in 2 Samuel, it suggests to us that this event happened uh, after he conquered Jebus. In one sense, it doesn't matter. Okay? But as we try to understand what actually happened, here are a few thoughts uh, in that regard. Now, as we look here in 1 Chronicles 14 and verses 8 through 17, this is the parallel passage. And there are only a few differences. Everything else is, is verbatim uh, or very, very similar. Uh, let me call one to your attention at the moment. That's verse 16. It says they were driven from Gibeon to Getzer. And as you come back to 2 Samuel, you'll see it's from Geba to Getzer. We'll look at that uh, here in just a moment. There are a couple of things that I'll call to your attention here in a bit. All right, so let's come now to verse 18. And uh, it says, The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, so here again, if you take a moment and look at your maps, you see where Jerusalem is. You see where Bethlehem is, just to the south. Kiriath-Jerim is to the west. And at least on, on this map that I have, you see that little blue line? Some of it's dotted, some of it's, it's a solid line. That means it's a wadi, meaning it fills up during the rainy season and dries up in the dry season. We saw several of these when we dropped off Nathaniel. There were several bridges. We crossed over rivers and creeks that were totally dried up because it was the middle of July or the end of July. Um, so it's that general area where that blue line is, and maybe it possibly went south of Beth Shemesh uh, where the valley of Rephaim is. You can see it from Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, this is where they came. Now, let me um, say a few things in this way. When there was two kings in Israel, the Philistines weren't too concerned. But now that David is the lone king in Israel, and as we saw, over 340,000 people came for this coronation, this got the Philistines' attention. Um, David now is a threat. He may have been a friend of sorts earlier, but... They certainly don't see that now. Um, if we see David as being in Hebron, and he goes down to the stronghold and so forth, for the Philistines to come to this area, you see how they're trying to cut off the, uh, uh, the rest of Israel from David. 
even if he's in Jerusalem initially and then goes down to the stronghold, uh, the Philistines are, are posing a significant threat. Um, again, whatever the case, um, that's what uh, are, are the basic ideas and the options and so on. Um, there's one other thought here in this way. Um, probably most of the soldiers had gone home. Okay. Certainly they would have come to help defeat Jebus if that happened first. And so, you know, maybe some of them are all the way home and he's, um, uh, they're going to try to keep them from joining up with David. Again, questions um, that we can't fully answer. All right, well, let's come then to verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. All right, well, David has protected himself here by going to the stronghold. Okay, nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Uh, but notice here now the emphasis. David is seeking the Lord's guidance. He is trusting in the Lord. Now, this is something we've seen David do a number of times in 1 Samuel. We saw it here in 2 Samuel in chapter 2, verse 1. After Saul died, he inquired of the Lord, should you go up to Hebron? And, and yes, and he is crowned there. Now he is asking again in this context. That word there, the New King James translates as inquired, is the word for ask. So the ask theme that we started all the way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel is continuing. Okay? Israel asked for a king and they received a man named Ask. Okay? Remember Saul, uh, is his name means to ask. Well, David... He is asking God. Note the contrast. Back to Hannah, who asked for a son and trusted in the Lord. Here is David, who is asking God uh, in this trusting sort of way. Now, um, the way we read this verse, it sounds like David probably used the Urim and Thummim. It doesn't say it specifically. But recall that Abiathar escaped. Remember when Saul and Doeg killed the priests in Nob? Uh, he escaped with the ephod and the Urim and Thummim and came to David. And so certainly David had it, and it sounds like it was used here in this case. Uh, you may recall the Urim and Thummim. We don't really know for sure what it was, but our best guess is it was kind of like rolling dice. They had light sides and dark sides, and as they cast them, they would ask yes or no questions, and then based on how the dice would roll out with light and dark, this would give them an answer. And of course, in Israel, they believed that God would providentially rule and thus answer their questions. And so note the yes or no questions here. Shall I go up? The Lord said to David, go up. That's a simple yes or no uh, question and answer. Will you deliver them into my hand? Yes or no. Okay, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. You can definitely see how they could have used the Urim and Thummim here. The, the emphasis in the second answer, doubtless, or your translation may say surely or something like that, um, maybe the way the dice were, uh, uh, the result was, uh, emphasized the answer in some way. But of course, David also had prophets with him. We know he had Gad. 
and eventually in chapter 7 we're going to see Nathan. We don't know when he joins up with David, and certainly there were others. So God may have sent a prophet with a message. Typically, though, when a prophet comes, there's an extended answer. We'll see that for sure in chapter 7. Even here in verses 22 through 24, we're going to see an extended answer. Um, Certainly much more than we see here. So whichever way God used to reveal his answer to David and his will for him, God is seek, or excuse me, David is seeking God, and God here is guiding him, directing David to fight against the Philistines. So verse 20. So David went to Baal Peretzim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Peretzim. Now, this place, we think, was roughly three miles from Jerusalem. So this was on the, 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 the end of the valley closest to Jerusalem. And uh, again, it says to go up, and he does go up. It suggests he doesn't come from Jerusalem. You would su- assume that meant he went down if he were in Jerusalem. Uh, but whatever the case, he comes to this valley. Now, Um, Remember the Philistines were well known for their chariots. And so this would have been a very conducive place for them to fight. And they had horsemen as well as a regular uh, army and so forth. And so this would have been a key advantage for them. Um, Now, let me read this for you here a moment. This is 1 Samuel 13. Remember when the Philistines came against Saul. It says, they gathered together to fight 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And remember, they were all afraid, and Samuel doesn't come, and people are leaving, and Saul offers the sacrifice, and so on. We don't know how many, key, uh, how many Philistines came against David now. It doesn't tell us. Was it the same kind of number? Was it more? Was it less? We don't know. Because of the success the Philistines had in Israel, maybe they were overconfident and didn't send as many. We don't know. But it didn't matter. Because God was giving David the success. And as it says here, God fought for Israel and they routed the Philistines. You see the the military tactic here. It was a frontal assault. They blew right through the line, basically. Now, note the language here, breaking through, like water. Now, I recall, and maybe some of you do as well, some of the pictures during Katrina and the levees there around New Orleans. Or maybe you've seen pictures along the Mississippi River or something like that with the different levees and during flood season how some of them break um, and the water just pours through there. There's no stopping it at all. And the fields and the cities get flooded and so forth. Well, that's the idea here. This is a massive breach, so massive, it's worthy of a name. And so David names it, note it's given here twice, Baal Peretzim, and the actual word there is used four times. Peretzim means to break through. And so you see that uh, translated twice plus the name twice. And so the Lord of breakthroughs is the meaning of this place. Now, you recall, <coughs> recall that I've said at other times that Baal, uh, just the word itself means Lord or Master. 
It doesn't always have to refer to the idol, uh, the false god, but maybe we should think of both here. Yahweh is the true Baal. He is the true Lord, the true master. Not Baal, not Dagon, not any of the other Philistine gods. He enables David to just plow right through them. And if there were 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, obviously this is a huge deal. Even if there were only 1,000 chariots and 500 horsemen, this is a big deal. God routed the Philistines. All right, so verse 21 then says, And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. And the defeat was so massive that the Philistines dropped everything and ran, including their gods, which, of course, they never would do this unless they had no choice. And so these blocks of wood, these hunks of metal, could not help against the true and living God. Now, of course, you remember back in 1 Samuel, the Israelites tried to use the ark as a good luck charm, and it was captured, and so forth. And um, yeah, just, you know, all this is part of the backstory, right? And, and here now we have this uh, new part of the story. All right, now it says that David and his men carried away these idols. Here's one of those places in 1 Chronicles. We get a little bit more information. And so in 1 Chronicles 14 and verse 12, it says, When they left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. So they didn't carry them like the Philistines took the ark back to Dagon's house. David doesn't carry these idols back to Yahweh's house. No, they carry them to some bonfire and burn them up. And so the um, destruction of Philistia is shown in this way. And so the images of Dagon are shown, once again, to be useless. Not just when the head and the arms break off, but now here in this way. And so they're not worth keeping. Um, Let me read from Deuteronomy 7. And verse 5, when they were to come into the land, they were not to marry the people, and so forth. And in verse 5, it says, You shall deal with them, you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. And so David does here in this way. He obeys God. All right, now let's think of a few uh, broader points here. Notice... One of the things that we learn is this. The Philistine success that happened during the reign of Saul was because of Saul's sin and Israel's sin. It's because Saul did not trust in the Lord. Israel did not trust in the Lord. Now, I made reference to 1 Samuel 13. Okay, Well, remember, Jonathan rose up, and he went with his armor bearer, and the two of them defeated Garrison, and then they routed the Philistines, and remember the eating the honey and all that sort of thing. So th- there was at least one man who had faith in Yahweh, Jonathan, and they were successful. But as a general rule, because of Saul's sin, the Philistines were taking over the land. They were coming all the way to within sight of Jerusalem. And so um, one thing we learn here is when our enemies have success, it's an indication that we're likely not trusting in the Lord. 
We're living in sin in some way, and God is therefore punishing us accordingly. Remember what we've seen in Romans 1, for example. When these things happen, it's an indication our relationship with God is not in a good place. And that certainly is the case with Saul, but note the contrast. It doesn't happen with David. It's the exact opposite. Okay? David routes the Philistines because he's seeking the Lord. And so this then really becomes our main point, isn't it? David sought the Lord. David trusted in God. David obeyed God. God said, go up. He did. If there were 30,000 chariots and so forth, note the contrast of 1 Samuel 13. Saul is afraid. Everybody's running away. Not here. David trusts and he obeys. And then he gives glory to God for the victory. He doesn't claim it for himself. He doesn't say, oh, look, I see you, you should have chosen me a long time ago. I'm much better than Ishbosheth or Saul or whatever. No, he gives glory to God for the victory. It's not about David. It's about Yahweh. It's about their covenant Lord. And again, the contrast with the previous king is certainly in the background, if not pretty close to the foreground here. So for ourselves. We may not be fighting thousands of chariots or, again, however many there were here. Um, we may not be in an actual physical battle, though the globalists and progressives are getting closer and closer to that. But we do battle, certainly, with principalities and powers. We battle with our old man, our flesh. We battle with the world. It tempts us to live like the world. We are constantly in warfare in this sense. And so we may not use swords or guns or loud clashing and so forth, as we sang a little bit ago, uh, but we are constantly in a battle against sin, against the things that go against God. And so let's trust him. Let's seek him. Let's obey him. Let's give him glory, just like David does here. As we saw in verse 10 here last time, if God is with us, success is assured. doesn't mean we'll win every battle. doesn't mean we won't die for our faith. It doesn't mean we'll have millions of dollars. But if God is with us, we will have success. And so trust him. He will defend us against our enemies, whether physical enemies or spiritual or whatever. So here's our, our first point, and really the main point in this section. But we're not done. We have now verse 22. And the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So just like we saw back in verse 18, they do it again. A few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, hey. I suppose we could say a few years later, but it sounds like it's not that much after the first event. We don't know for sure, um, but it does suggest to us not that much uh, afterward. They, they think, oh, you know, we just weren't ready or something like that, you know, and they're going to try again. So verse 23 then. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them 
and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Has David retreated to the stronghold and he's going up again? Again, we don't know for sure. But notice here a couple things. First of all, David does not presume that his prior victory is going to guarantee another one. How often do we do that? We do a good job trusting the Lord, not perfectly, of course, but we're seeking to serve him. We're seeking God's guidance. We try to obey and follow his leading, and and things work out well. And then a week later, we're like, I can do this. And it can lead to a big disaster, can't it? You see how David is not presuming he is asking God again. He is not trying to do it on his own strength. You know, wow, this worked out so well. We, we can handle this. Uh, remember Jericho and Ai? Now, yeah, you have the specific sin of taking things, but there seemed to be a bit of an overconfidence for some too there. It's easy for us to become overconfident after we've been successful. God gives success. We assume he'll do it again. But we should always ask. We should always specifically seek to trust and to pray and so forth. David does that here. And he's again successful. Let's do the same. So again, he says, should he go up? And the answer this time is, No, go around, go around. Um, Again, suggests he's not yet in Jerusalem, but whatever the case, um, if David would have presumed, notice he probably would have tried another frontal assault. But presumably the Philistines would have emboldened themselves for another frontal assault, and God says, hey, let's do it a different way. Hey, don't use the same military tactic. And so uh, David here is seeking God's guidance, and God gives a different direction this time. On the one hand, it's the same answer, yes, go up, but just do it differently. On the other hand, and the way, of course, it's worded is no, don't go up, don't do the same thing. And so once again, let me just reiterate this point. Let's not trust in our past successes. Is continue to seek the Lord. Okay. Let's not trust in the fact that we prayed the sinner's prayer 50 years ago. Let's trust in God every day. Let's not trust in the fact that we had some great spiritual experience when we were in college or a few years ago, God brought us through this amazing time and so forth and don't put your trust in those things look back on it and 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 give thanks to god for what he had done in your life but continue to look forward look to the lord trust in him as you're going forward so again just a, a few words here in this way all right now notice that the answer to david's request here is much longer than what we saw Uh, in verse 19, which suggests to us that David now received the answer from God through a prophet, whether it was Gad or Nathan or someone else. And so this does not sound like a yes or no kind of scenario. 
I suppose it's possible, David said, okay, we've got these various military tactics, which one do you want us to use, Lord? And they rolled the Urim and Thummim, but it sounds more like uh, a prophet came. All right, so this time God wants them to go around. And so this was either to surprise them or to squeeze them or to cut off their escape or maybe some of all the above. We are going to see they flee in a very different direction than they surely would have done the first time. Uh, let me pause and say this. Uh, you might remember, um, I, I recall saying this when we went through the book of Joshua. I may have said something similar in Judges. Uh, but historically, it has often been the case of God's people referring back to situations like this and using military tactics like this in their current situation. And they're very deliberate about it. You know, Joshua defeated whoever in this way, and we're going to do the same thing here in our current situation. And so these two different, the frontal assault, the end round, right? They're different ways uh, to fight, and military leaders have, have used these. So just a, a brief comment to remind us of this point. And in this case, God says you go around to the mulberry trees. Now, if you have another translation, you may have a different word there. Some have translated it as a balsam tree. Some have even said it's the baca shrub. And, you know, we think of shrubs, we think of something small, but it could be 8 to 10, 12 feet tall or something like that. But whatever that was, God says go to them. And then verse 24, And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. All right, so notice they're to go out and then they're to wait. And when they hear the sound in the trees, then they are to advance. Now, first of all, um, what is this sound? Well, let's turn to 2 Kings here just a moment. Chapter 7. This is when the Syrian army came against Israel. And uh, beginning in verse 3, just read a little bit here. There were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. Remember, they had to stay outside the city. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. Right? They were besieging Israel. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we will only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of uh, a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And the lepers start taking things and then they spread the the word and so forth. The point is, God has done it like this before. And yes, 2 Kings is after, but we can look at some things before this, too. Um, most notably 1 Samuel 7. But um, um, however God did this, was it wind in the trees that they were confused by? Uh, Did he actually supernaturally create these sounds? Uh, We don't know exactly how he did it. But he did it. And 
David, then, is to wait on the Lord. As I said here just a moment ago, David did not become overconfident and not ask God, nor did he think his success was his own. But God here now makes it even more plain. You need to wait for me to bring my army, as it were, the Lord of hosts here against the Philistines. Wait for God. Now note again this suggestion back to Saul and 1 Samuel 13. Saul didn't wait. He almost killed his son over all of this. David does wait, and the Philistines are routed completely and really are no longer a threat in Israel. There's this massive success. So verse 25, And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Getzer. There is a thorough defeat here of the Philistines, and it's because God, uh, David trusted in God. David waited. David obeyed. Let's do the same. Now, if you look at your map here one other time, and uh, here again, the land of the 12 tribes, you see uh, a little bit north and west of Jerusalem is Gibeon. You might remember I called our attention in First Chronicles to this. That's the, uh, the town that is mentioned there from Gibeon. Note, straight west to Getzer. Okay, remember where the, the, the valley of Rephaim is. They go north, and then they go west, and then they would have gone south back to Philistia. Now, Geba is just you know a mile or two from Gibeon, so whichever one it is historically, they go in the same general direction. The frontal assault probably meant they went directly home. Now, this time, if circle around, probably meant more were killed and uh, more of a success by Israel. But the text doesn't emphasize those particulars. What it emphasizes is David trusting the Lord. <laughs> okay. All right, now if you look at chapter 8 just briefly, uh, verse 1 it says, It came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. He took Methagamah from the hand of the Philistines. That's a border dispute. In First Chronicles chapter 20, we see something similar. Okay. And uh, it, it's, it's not this, the Philistines come all the way into Israel and there's this huge battle. But what we see after this event here in 2 Samuel 5 is just minor border skirmishes <clears throat> with the Philistines. The key enemy of Israel is really nothing anymore. Again, note the contrast with Saul. His sin led to all these problems, David's obedience, all the success. David trusted in the Lord, God was with him, David obeyed, and so forth. And so this massive victory here really uh, spells the end of Philistine control in Israel. The true king is ruling. I know the contrast with Saul. 1 Samuel 31 ends with such a mess. But now, it's the opposite. Okay? A huge victory. Even more than Saul, David, in many ways, is finishing what Joshua started. What Samson partially did, what Jonathan partially did, even what Saul partially did, David now has finished. 
Let me read here that one other part in 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 17. Then the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So David isn't just successful against the Philistines, but in all kinds of other ways too. And again, it's because David trusted in the Lord, and God was with him. Okay. And it stays this way uh, well into Solomon's rule. Uh, when he starts getting led away by his wives, there's uh, some uh, difficulty there. And certainly after the kingdom split with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, we then see the Philistines returning as a more major threat. But in the meantime, they aren't. And again, it's because of, of this here. <clears throat> All right. So our main point then tonight is simply this. God fights for his people. And since God is our king, God is our warrior, God is our Baal, our Lord and our master, okay, let's trust him. It's easy to say, but in the midst of our, our fights, whether big and actual with guns or whatever, or when we're lying in bed trying to fall asleep and we're struggling and so forth, whatever, wherever that battle is, God fights for us. He is the true God. He has defeated our enemies in this way with David. He'll do the same today. He has defeated our enemies through Christ on the cross. He's going to defeat our enemies now. And he fully and finally, completely, will defeat our enemies on the day of final judgment. Now let me end with one thought here. Another kind of pet peeve of mine. The word Palestine comes from the word Philistine. Now obviously we have all this going on in the Gaza Strip and Hamas and Israel and so forth. You know, it shouldn't surprise us because these are Philistines fighting against Israelites. Now, there have been a lot of changes in the meantime. We are Israel as the church. We are the true Israel. And yet, this battle over the Middle East is connected. Okay. And also, here's where my pet peeve comes in. For at least 100 years, in Christian circles, so this is pre-1948 in the establishment of Israel. Even in Christian circles, they've called the area of the Middle East Palestine. It's like, no, it's not the land of the Philistines. It's the land that God gave to Israel. And yes, it's not the same now that Christ has come. But uh, even today, Christians will talk about the land of Palestine. Israel settled in the land of Palestine. And I, I'm talking about back with Joshua. No, no, no. The Philistines are a prototype of our enemies. Let's not give them any ground, even in the, the, the names that we use here. So anyway, just a, a brief thought in this way. Well, next time, we begin looking at this major event of bringing the Ark to Jerusalem. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the reality of this historical event. And though there are certain details we uh, can't pin down and don't 
know exactly how they worked out. We are thankful, Lord, that uh, this really happened. And the actual trust of David, the Urim and Thummim, the prophets, however it was, where he asked and you answered and your success against the Philistines, all these things um, really happened and, and uh, encourage us today to know that you are the same God and you have brought success through Christ. You bring success for us today and you certainly will bring full and complete success at the second coming of Christ in the final judgment. We are thankful, Lord, that our enemies, though many times powerful, our enemies within our hearts and minds and those outside of us sometimes can seem overwhelming. But we are thankful, Lord, that you fight for us. You have fought for us. And um, this gives us confidence. Help us, Lord, then to trust you. Help us, Lord, to... um, always look to you and not rely on ourselves in the battle. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.